Let's commence. I am waiting. You're, you're ready for this? I'm ready for this. Glenn Patterson is was born in Belfast. He's the author of six previous novels. Seven. Oh, yeah, seven. seven six, seven. His first book, Burning Your Own, that puts you on the map. It uh, won a Betty Trask Award and the Rooney Prize for Irish Literature. So as long as you've won the one award, then the publishers are happy, right? It was 1988, 20 years. Um, it, was, it was strange because you mentioned math, because at that time I had this notion, and perhaps all writers when they're starting out have to have this notion that the fictional map of the place that they come from needed updating. The stories that I was seeing on television or reading or hearing on radio were uh, about the place that I came from were uh, outdated, that they didn't reflect the kind of world that I had grown up in and so that was uh, one of the, the reasons why I think I started uh, wanting to set fiction in Belfast was some idea that actually there's a story here that isn't being told. In Belfast there is uh, there are like like many cities like like Montreal, yeah. uh, the city grows in stages, and so you can you can find you know you'll find the old town, you'll find the uh, the first suburbs that then get overtaken and become inner city, and then uh, you can, so you can find rings and rings and rings and a lot of the a lot of the um, stories that I grew up with about Belfast were set in the old Victorian city, the mill houses the uh, the landscape of you know, back-to-back terraces and um, dark and smoking. I grew up in a housing estate, three miles from the city centre. Lots of fields around us. Um, and freedom. Freedom, yeah, relatively. You know, it was uh, it was just a stage of development. It was a post-war stage of development. Housing estates built in the 1950s, uh, growing population rising affluence. Strange now to think of the Belfast that used to exist before it became famous for other reasons. Uh, but in the 1960s, my parents um, came to Canada in the 50s and uh, had three children here and returned to Belfast in 1960, partly because the, there were uh, pulls in the heartstrings from my dad's family, but also partly because they thought that there were jobs there and that was, you know, it was a good time to go back. Well, shipping was shipping was very big. Yeah, my dad worked in the shipyard. The industrial decline began probably in the early twentieth century. But you know, there were there were periods where it looked like things were um, at least not declining too fast. Um, so anyway, this um, this place that I grew up in, um, you know, there was uh, these housing estates that were built in the nineteen fifties and were relatively religiously mixed. And in the early 1970s, when the troubles were just getting going, there was uh, that was the the location of a lot of the trouble in the 1970s. So I wanted to write novels set in um, in that Belfast, and, and I hadn't seen them at that stage. So uh, you know what? Uh, yeah, I can't even think of uh, what are some of the better known novels that are set in Belfast. Well. Afterwards, I mean, as I say, 1988, I was 26 when the first one came out, and uh, it felt to me, it might be an ignorance, but it felt to me as though, you know, I was, I was ahead of the game, you know, that there hadn't been uh, too many novels by people of my generation. Shortly after that, then, there, there were uh, several uh, writers who published their first works in the next couple of years. Robert McLean Wilson is a, a 
would be a, um, a very well-known one. And he published uh, a novel called Ripley Bogle, uh, which was set in a housing estate in West Belfast that he grew up in, uh, very similar to the one that he grew up in. Mm-hmm. And then a wonderful novel called Eureka Street, which came out about 1996. Yeah, it's a, a love poem to Belfast. But in all its variety, I think that's the thing. It was the... It was the uh, the, the need for variety in the depiction of the place. I thought, I thought when I started out that I had become a little bit atrophied. Now, of course, um, in 2008, 20 years after the first novel came out, look around my city and I think there are huge tracts of this that, that I don't know, that I don't, I never will know. I never will know in that way that there's a time when, uh, not for, not even just for a writer, I think as, as a citizen of a place, there's a time when you feel right across the city. You know, you, you feel like this is my place and this is my time. Yeah. Um, there isn't a single bar that opens that you don't know something about. There isn't a, you know, you, you know how to live in that city. You know, you know how um, it feels as though it's there for you and the city is your home. Yeah, yeah, it's it's all by the world. And you know, I'm I'm older. I have children. I don't go out in quite the same way. And I don't have this. I don't think I have quite the same um, hunger for the city because I, I I get the feeling that actually I just you know I can't participate. I can't participate in it in the same way that I used to. There was a period um, when I was in my twenties where I just thought I just couldn't get enough. I wanted to swallow the city. Would you yeah. meaning what though? Like you just want to get your out in the pubs. You no, know, I, yeah, I wanted to be out. Sports, I wanted, uh, um, yeah, I wanted. I just wanted to know everything about it. You know, I was, and I still am fascinated. I'm about to start working on a historical novel, set in the 1830s, about the time that Belfast was about to grow from being um, a, a large port uh, into a huge industrial city. Yeah, Titanic. Came yeah, into Titanic. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, around about that time, I'm, I'm just setting the novel, just about before the Big Bang. And so I'm still very interested in the, in the city, but there, uh, there, there comes a point where I think you, you have to... Bob Dylan, in his, uh, in his memoir, uh, talks about your moment in history. Uh, and he felt that you know his, he identifies his own moment in history when everything he sang about, everything he wrote about, rang true without him he didn't have to do anything he just wrote it and, and it resonated it sort of reflected the time yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. it's a bit like uh, uh, Goethe with um, Sorrows of Young Werther apparently it just was it just captured it just, yeah. the time yeah. yeah I think that's you know sometimes you just think that you're right across it no I I um, I look at Belfast and I think this is a wonderful place for my children to be growing up in and I can't wait to read the stories that they're going around just because the place is cleaned up and, uh, and, and nice and pleasant and oh easy God, to live in no, no, it's, it's um, no, it's wonderful in that it's wonderful in that it's just kind of it's like it's grown several new chapters it's thriving yeah and complexity you know it's, it's complexity cities are places of maximum confusion and complexity and excitement you know that's the, the novel seems to be the proper home for the novel uh, uh, the city seems to be the proper home for the novel yeah. and vice versa actually if you, if you had to, if you had to um, create a, a fictional form to cope with the city then it would have to be the novel um, and I, Dickens and I, you think of Dickens yeah of course yeah, yeah, yeah. all those 19th century Century novels. You know, it's not to say that there are no such thing as great novels um, from uh, uh, rural uh, societies as well and cultures, but I mean, there, there's something I think that um, the novel properly uh, can deal with the city in a way that no other form can. But uh, specifically, though, let's look at that. What, what, what allows the novel to do that versus what the poem? Like a poem, the poem is pretty pretty good with London. Yeah, but you know, but, yeah, you, you get snapshots of the poem. 
you know, you don't. Um, uh, I mean, I think about, you know, if I think about poetry and I think about London, for instance, then um, the one that springs to mind as being um, really catching London would be something like Autumn Journal by Louis McNeese, which is a sequence of poems, you know, I, I think that you, um, which actually aspires to the condition of novel almost, um, yeah. you know, I think. Uh, Just because it's large enough to capture all yeah. the complexity? Yeah, I think that's it. And, 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 and also because the. the, the um, well, I mean, I'm not just saying this about Louis McNeese because he was born in Belfast, you know, which is my special claim to him for that, but I, I do think that that's one of the great uh, autumn journal sequence of 1930. It's one of the great poetic achievements of the 20th century, um, and I, I, it's one of the great uh, works of literature about the city, because it happens to be London, one of the great things about London. But uh, but I, I think it's, you know, I think it's historically um, you, could, you can identify the, the, uh, the rise of the modern novel and, you know, I've read... When I was a student, I'm sure I read many books on this theory. You can, uh, you can sort of pin the, the rise of the modern novel to industrialization, to um, the, you know, the, the, the rise of the great uh, industrial cities as well. Yeah. And also the rise of human rights. Yeah. Too, interestingly. The, um, the city is... Uh, is it's, uh, here, I'll quote uh, what you have said to you. Yeah, to you yeah, I'll say, I don't mind hearing that. <laughs> Cities seem to entail a mixture, whereas the nation-state and the language of nationalism is about purity, exclusion. That's what I fear most. Mm. I, I don't understand countries. I mean, to sit in Montreal and talk about nation, um, you know, I should be asking the questions, and people here should be telling me what they think about it. You know, I. I, I I live in a place, um, uh, an arbitrarily created country. Uh, and to say that it's an arbitrarily created country doesn't mean that, um, uh, isn't to say that that I wish away the border that exists in Ireland. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's an artificial creation. You, 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 I know the negotiations that took place. I know that they tried two or three different places um, for, you know, for the line to go. Um, and they, they came up with the the largest area that they could encompass with the um, largest number of Protestants in it was how they, they came with the... Um, Capture them. Yeah, in Northern Ireland, you know. Yeah. So, um, Whereas the city is more of a natural... Yeah. Well, the fact that, for example, there's a river that's going to allow a, a mill to... Exactly. Yeah. So you, you, you understand that? I understand cities in, in, in their confusion and their complexity. Um, I, you, and you can, I can walk a city. You know, people... If you live in the city, you are of the, of the city, and there's no argument about that for me. Um, you can be a recent arrival in the city, you can be a lifelong uh, citizen, but you are of the city as soon as you arrive there. Um, nations encompass people who are in otherwise, uh, in other ways, um, totally unlike each other, and they have to explain to the people of this nation why. Even though cities do too, though of course. So the cities do too. There's different. Yes, of course. Right? Yes, yeah, but 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 cities don't uh, depend on convincing everyone the reasons why they why they are there. You know, so you have to tell people why they're in Northern Ireland or why they're in Canada as opposed to Quebec. You know, you have to say why this is a nation. This, you know, so you you have the national myths. You know, the the thing with the the thing with the nation is the closer you get to the border, 
the less necessary the border actually is because you're, you're putting a line between people who are exactly the same. Wherever you draw that line, those people... They're more like each other. Exactly, than, uh, yeah, than they are, you know, like people 200, 300, 500 miles away wherever your national capital is. Nation-states are, uh, are fairly recent arrivals in... Uh, and, and in, a, in, a, in history, you know, so and there are things to be feared. We just look at all the carnage that. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Because you want to extend your boundaries all the time, you know. And they are they're aware. People then have to create these uh, these these national myths to which you have to sign up. And I've never really bought them. The city has uh, has uh, and the architecture has fascinated you. Mm, absolutely. There's a, there's this lovely symbiotic relationship where people build a city to express something of their own character, their aspirations. Because of the buildings that they create, that, that landscape, the next generation in turn are informed by that. You know, I am, I am the, the person I am in part because of the place that I grew up. Concrete, if you'll exactly. explain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, I, and I love that, uh, uh, the, the way in which they, the, the city literally does form um, the, the citizens. And, and it's more of a, a natural progression then, you're thinking? Um, more of a natural progression. Yeah, again, it's, it's, it's ad hoc. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. It's not, it's not imposed. Yeah, exactly. It's not, yeah, yeah. Since we're in I, once, I remember one of the first times, politically this was a very important moment for me, I remember once taking a train, uh, I, I must have been in my very early 20s, and I was in uh, England. I was taking a train out of London, uh, on my way down to Brighton and looking at the variety of houses, uh, you know, the back gardens in Wardian London, interwar London, the, the blocks of awful flats built up built in the 1960s and all of this. And I looked at it and I just, I had this flash. I thought, a city will always resist totalitarianism. You know, cities are actually, you cannot control a city. You might control it for a little while, but you couldn't, you couldn't police something this size. You just, you can't. And, I, and I, I, I remember being so excited by this thought that behind, you know, every, everywhere you looked, there, there was the possibility of independent thought. Something, you know, something would be generated in a place of this size that resisted totalitarianism. And shortly afterwards, I was in um, the mid-1990s, I wrote a novel set in Disneyland in Paris, which was then being built. And one of the really, really interesting things about it, the reason I went there was because I wasn't interested in Disney, but I was interested in the fact that the scale of the, of the building site, I had been told, was exactly the same size as a medieval city-state. So I thought, well, there's, you know, I'm interested in cities, so I'm going to go and look and see a, a city under construction in the heart of Europe. And I went there, and the building site, all the um, building firms had their own sort of little camps around about, you know, the main building site. And in all of these little camps, streets had started to grow where people took shortcuts, and it started to replicate um, a city. You know, it's quicker to get from here to here if you go down here. So yeah, a little path would be worn, and then they put up signposts. You know, people had the Irish uh, building firms had the names of some streets, Dublin streets. You know, Northern Irish building firms had some Belfast streets. Uh, you know, and and here here was this real city ad hoc. You know, it's funny when you're saying that. Mm -hmm. I I'm thinking of um, the shanty towns outside of Cape Town. Yeah, and how the residents of those shanty towns don't want to go where the government has said, well, we'll build you little concrete yeah. houses if you like. Yeah. 
there's no way. Yeah. yeah. They're comfortable with sure, it. Yeah. Develop naturally. Yeah. They have one thing which you you can't legislate. You see that somewhere like Beijing at the minute, where they're clearing historic communities to build the the, the Olympic Village, and some people are moving gladly because they're going to get better flats. Other people don't want to go because they're going to lose that neighbourhood, mm. and that's that's the thing that you, I think, you know, the shanty towns. Uh, you, you have a sense community, of community, and again, yeah, and, and community is such a loaded word yeah. where I come from, and I, I suspect it's a loaded word here, where community is um, sometimes a, a, another word for side. Uh, Your group, people in my community, uh, but there's that wonderful active sense of community. Which a uh, very old-fashioned word, you know, neighbourliness, uh, which I think is a, a great quality. I'm, become, I'm coming to appreciate it much, much more. Well, it's, and it's so Irish too. You think of the pub, and you think exactly of that. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And, uh, and 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 you know, two greater words in the English language were never put together than public house. You know, so one of those things, if you, you you think public house, public house, then you think, oh wait a minute, it's a house, but it's public. Yeah. It's forever. Yeah. I was. Um, <laughs> when I was a student, for for reasons which um, well actually are quite straightforward, I fell in love with someone. That's um, uh, usually the case. Yes, of course. And she was the member. She was a member of a of a homebrew society of all things uh-huh. uh, in the, at the university. And uh, so rather than declare my love, it wasn't a literary society. Uh, no. Yeah, rather than declare my love for her, I declared my love for homebrew beer. And uh, and one of the one of the perks of being a member of this homebrew society. This was in East East Anglia in England. Uh, was that you would go to little uh, villages around about to taste um, you know, small breweries beer, and uh, we went into one place um, in a, a very small village in Suffolk, and there was uh, a really early example of a public house. It, it was literally just someone's front room yes. in which there was a counter and when you ordered your beer they walked into the back room and they got the beer from there and they brought it back. And I think that was the first time um, uh, that I had realised just you know that, that how that term originated. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a communal living room. Yeah. Yeah, and so I mean, I've always loved it, and I, I've written quite extensively actually about pubs, um, and it's not just because I like sitting in them and, uh, and <laughs> drinking beer, but but I really do think that they ver- they are very very important. And Belfast actually lost, uh, I would say, it lost about fifty uh, percent of its pubs uh, in the in the years of the troubles, and it lost an awful just, just because they were blown up, right? Some were blown up, and some just closed because um, you know people were afraid to go into the city centre. They were afraid to leave their their areas. Um, I had a job shortly after I left school. I worked in a bookshop in the in the city centre, and in the 1970s there was a, a cordon of. Uh, security gates around the city centre. You couldn't get in and out without going through these gates. And at nine o'clock every night they locked those gates um, and there was a little turnstile you had to wriggle through if you wanted to get out. And I used to sit in some of these pubs that were inside that security ring um, at nights. There were very few people in them. And that, you know, I was really glad I did because I experienced some of these bars before they disappeared. But yes, that was uh, the public. The public house, I think, is a very important uh, element of of that neighbourliness. I'm talking to Glenn Patterson, and the book we talked about, Disney, is is entitled Black Night at Big Thunder Mountain. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah, Black Night at Big Thunder Mountain was published in 1995. With regards to the the past and writing about the past, I mean, I certainly hope I never wrote about the past uh, in any way that suggested it was 
idyllic. I also, I don't believe that there ever was a kind of a, a pristine state, you know, a place that you can go back to and say it was all fine there, or this was the moment when our culture was uncontaminated. You know, I think, I think uh, what is wonderful about uh, humankind is that it is constantly in motion. You know that people travel. You know, I come to I come to Canada. I come to Montreal. I meet people. You know, the, the stories that they have brought with them. People in motion. People. People who are then moving on. Who were born here. Who are on their way somewhere else. So, if I write about the past, it isn't to recover some kind of idyllic state. But is it so that we're not doomed to repeat it? But let's face it. You would never. You would never just arbitrarily select a moment in history and say, "I'm going to write about." 35 years ago. I wrote a novel called The International, which uh, was set in January, very specifically set, January 1967, uh, in a hotel, the International Hotel, which did exist in Belfast. The novel is set on the night before the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association had their first meeting, and it happened to be inside that hotel. And Subsequently, that meeting, uh, that first meeting of the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association became very important. Historically, it was very, very important. Um, it was one of the um, markers on the road towards the outbreak of the Troubles. Um, that wasn't the intention of the people who met, but that was one of the consequences of, uh, of what happened. And the other, there was another fact about this hotel, the International Hotel, which was that um, a young barman from there had been murdered six months before and at the time he was murdered nobody could quite grasp what was going on but it was a murder he was murdered because he was a Catholic he was murdered by some uh, Protestants who had formed themselves into an illegal organization three years later that organization would come to prominence in the troubles this would this would become an everyday occurrence but in 1966 when this young kid was shot he was 18 nobody really quite knew what to make of it and I started to write my novel in the 1990s because a similar murder had occurred. We had just gone into our peace process and we were supposed to be moving away from the days of random killings and uh, somebody in his early 20s was murdered uh, in Belfast by the IRA this time. He was supposed to be on ceasefire. He was murdered because they said he was a drug dealer. And, and I sort of had this feeling that if something happens uh, which appalls you. I, you know, I, I have this feeling that the city should have grown to a halt in 1966 when Peter Ward was killed and said, this cannot happen. We will not allow this to happen. You say, no, this, not, no, this is, yeah, this is, this is my, everybody who... This is uncivilized. This is uncivilized. Everybody, and that's a good word, uncivilized, because Michael Longley, one of our great poets, um, said, the opposite of war is not peace. peace. The opposite of war is civilization. Everyone who is in a city is of that city, and anything that happens to a member of that, uh, a fellow citizen, happens to all of us. And, and I, I have this feeling the same part of the same body. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I started. So obviously, I, I think the reason I started writing a novel about the International Hotel, why I started doing it at that time, was because of something that happened in my present. Yeah, you know, in the 1990s. So it's not so much to say that um, it was it was kind of yes, signing a note of caution. You know, we're 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 entering into a new phase. We're entering into a, a period of peace. Uh, and I think I probably started the novel by wanting to say, among other things, you know, but for God's sake, don't let things happen. And say, well, in the interests of continued peace, we'll we'll not we'll not draw attention to that. You know, we'll it's it's just. Um, 
it's, it's just the, the, the death throes of an old way of life uh, and of, of solving our problems or addressing our problems. So you wanted, you wanted to get to that back to that point, what, what went wrong with our city to, yeah, so that we didn't stand up and shout and say that this isn't acceptable. Absolutely, yeah. There's a, you know, it's curious when you're a writer, the, the reasons why you start a book, are, you know, that, that, that's only one element in it. You know, there are so many things that happen. Once you start to write a book, you find all the reasons why you should be writing it. Shortly after I finished my first novel, uh, I, I read an article in uh, the Guardian newspaper Science column, The Theory of Cascading Consequences. It goes like this, that if you wind back the clock to a certain moment in history, and start it running again. There is no guarantee that things will happen exactly the same way, because every historical event is made up of so many millions, billions of coincidences and elements, and, and any one of those changes, then everything could be different. Uh, I think in the article I read, it said if you if you ran uh, re ran the clock to uh, one of the American Civil War battles, that if you ran it again, it was no no guarantee it would finish the same way. Yeah. And I, I liked that. That accorded with um, my own view of politics, which was that we are all individually responsible for society. Uh, you know, look at Tolstoy's vision. What I read in War and Peace is the 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 story of individuals whose actions have social and political consequences. As opposed to Napoleon who... Yeah. The one thing I fear above all else is that kind of shrug of the shoulders. And, you know, people say, oh, what can we do? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, to talk about individuals sometimes is... Um, individualism uh, can, can sound like a, a very uh, politically conservative opinion. You know, you know the, that famous Margaret Thatcher, there is no such thing as society. I, you know, I think that uh, there's no tension really between, well there's tension, but there's no um, disagreement between the individual and society. Every, every action that you have has social ramifications like this. And of course in the novel, that's, that's what we do. We, we, we mind, you know, we, we set characters off and, uh, and their actions have consequences. Yeah, they all start banging into each yeah, other in yeah. different ways. And yeah, they didn't bang into each other, it'd just be... Um, <laughs> <laughs> what would it be? Phone? Yeah. Phone. <laughs> <laughs> Your interest in... Um, Cities, I think of our uh, kid, well, she's American, but she lived for a good part of her life in Canada, Jane Jacobs. Do you read no, I'm much? I don't. No. Yeah, she, she'd be uh, an interesting writer for you to right, must, must have a look at. Yeah. One of the great things about coming to a festival like this, of course, is that um, you see somebody reading or you you browsing the bookshop, you pick up something or somebody suggests something, you know, it, uh, it, always, it always sends me away um, invigorated. The, your latest novel, then, perhaps we could uh, sort of weave that into the to your to the very rambling. Yeah, well, the themes that you're most uh, interested in, and also I, I really want to get at what what you want to achieve in your life as a writer and as a human being. Like, what is it that you want to leave? You know, what, uh, what do you want to change? Uh, I want to leave. As time goes on, my ambitions. Uh, you know, I, I don't think we can, any of us, um, hope that our work will last, to be perfectly honest. Um, and I think we should all write in the expectation that uh, what we have written will die with us and will soon be unavailable. I think that's going to be the case for the... Well, I know we now live in a, in a world where everything is supposedly um, 
captured Cap- captured forever. But I, you know, I I think in the you know in the sense of you know the books that will be in print and you know and relevant. I think we should assume that um, everything will die with us. So so my ambitions are always just for the next book. At this now, I sound like a, a, a soccer manager. You know, it's the next game. <laughs> that's right. Uh, Focus that's, on. that's all that matters. But it, but it is very much for me. You know, you go into everyone thinking, how can I do justice to the idea that I have in my head? So that's a very simple thing. And I, I think if books actually changed anything, they would have changed them a long time ago. You think of all the great books that we've already touched on in our conversation here. And there are books that you think of, if only everyone read that, mm. Slaughterhouse-Five, I think. How could anyone read Slaughterhouse-Five and ever clamber into a plane again you know, and drop, you know, all of these kinds of things But so books don't change uh, societies, they, they can uh, change individuals, I think That's I ironic though, because your focus is on individuals who theoretically change things Yeah, well, well, yeah well, everything we do changes everything, that, that doesn't mean it's not seismic change, it's the small kind of incremental. change, that I, yeah, incremental change that I think, uh, I mean I, I, in my own life I just think I have been, I am the person I am because of the things that I have read in large part um, but doesn't that contradict the power of books then? Or you say, no, 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 you no, say no. it works on the individual but not, not on society? The only books I can think of that have sort of changed societies have tend to do it for the worse. You know, they tend to be the ones with God in them. Those are the big books that uh, you know, mobilize thousands and millions of people uh, with the book in their hand. Yeah. Uh, with God in them or Mao in them, you know those, you know those, those big books or little books. Um, I was I was doing an interview with um, with Edna O'Brien in Belfast a few months back, and this question came up about her own work, how she felt it had changed, had her had her work contributed to um, the changes in Irish society that are so marked. In well, she was so restricted as a young woman. She right? was, her first six books were banned, and the last of those six books was banned as recently as, I think, 1969. And she more or less said that she, she didn't think that a book could, would, could change a society. No, no individual book could change a society, she said, but it worked on the individual level. Clearly, Society has changed uh, for the better in Ireland. Mm. Abort- there's a lot more abortion going on. If that's better, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, perhaps a lot fewer unwanted children. But what do you want? What do you want to change then? If well, or is there anything that I, I'm, I'm not sure whether the question of what you want to change is is one that uh, you correct me about this. Whether that's one that you would ask of. Every writer is, is it is it a, uh, an expectation you would have that every writer wants to change something, or is it something? Um, is it because of the fact that I'm writing out of this particular place that until recently was you know, characterized by political violence, and and because in my other writings, my non-fiction writings, I have you know very often written about political matters. Yeah, I, I think I think you know, specifically uh, yeah. you you want to. Readdress history, and I mean, these are the things that. So yeah. it seems to me that there is. I don't know if it's a mission, but mm. uh, I mean, yeah. The other thing too, though, is I think there's some motivation behind. Every every author has some sort of. Sure. Or maybe not. Maybe some authors just have all sorts of ideas bubbling around in their head, and they just want to get them out on paper. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I honestly do think that the, um, the 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 ambition that I would that I would have is that uh, that readers. Anyone reading anything that I wrote 
would either discover or have confirmed that human beings are more complicated and the complexity is uh, to be celebrated and not to be fault shy of. That the language of politics is reductive and tends to reduce people to a label. Which makes it easier to shoot them. Sure, it, it, yeah. The, the end of politics is to, if, if you're being particularly bleak about it, you exist to reduce the people to the one word for which you could actually eventually kill them. But yes, it categorizes people, it breaks them down. And I think what, what fiction does is it, it, it just shows that, those, uh, that the inner life um, resists all those, uh, those attempts at categorization. So, so that's why you would focus on very precisely on the detailed inner lives of people sure. as well as yeah. as well as the detailed yeah. inner life of the city. Absolutely. I mean, the sentence I'm about to speak is, is one that I've, um, I find myself saying quite often, but I, I can't think of another way to say it. And, and it, it, for me, the, there is a phrase that is used by politicians um, in the United Kingdom and in, in Ireland in particular. And it's, uh, it's the phrase is, the reality is. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, what that means is, our side thinks, you know, or our party thinks. But you dress that up, you say, the reality is, and then they'll say whatever the reality is, or we're supposed to accept the reality is. And I think that every time somebody writes a poem, a story, a song, makes a film, a stage play, whatever, every time you do that, that it is a repost to that phrase, the reality is, and what that repost says is also like this, and like this, and like this, and like this, and like this. And it's a bit like the A Thousand and One Nights, you know, that, you, that you'll, you'll never get to the point where you can reduce the person and say, right, now I'm going to kill you because they say, but also this, 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 do you know what I mean? It resists. Um, as, it's a uh, lifesaver. It resists putting a full stop, you know, and then. I, I just think that's a, a wonderful thing that every time you pick up a, a book uh, you discover um, another also. The last, the most recent book that you've, uh, you've written, uh, are, you, are you happy with it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you know what? If somebody says, are you happy with that book? Do you know, that's, that's like a teacher saying, to you, it's one more Patterson. I'm not going to tell you what I think of it. You tell me. <laughs> how, did you, how do you think you did there? To which you say, uh, I think I did very well. Um, am I happy with that book? Um, have you read it? Mm, I only got it yesterday. Ah, that's okay then. So that's, 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 not, a, that's not a loaded question. I'm going to read it. No, that's okay. Um, do you know what? Um, it's not loaded. That's right. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, I think I think the, the question of whether you're happy with a, um, a book. Um, if I'm being perfectly honest, I would say it's, uh, and I have said this. Uh, not only is it not the best book I've ever written, um, but it might not even be the third or fourth best I've ever written. You're not supposed to say that, though, right? Oh, but you know what? I mean, why lie? Uh, but Roddy Doyle calls it an intriguing and highly entertaining novel. So Roddy Doyle, he wouldn't lie, and he really wouldn't lie. But no, I think I think when you when you sit down to write a book. The most you can hope for, uh, you know, what you what you hope for is that when you finish it, 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 it is it answers to the that vision you had for it when you began. Yeah. Just to say a little bit about it, the, the novel's called the Third Party. Third Party is a it's a English 
translation of a term that's used in Japan for a kind of late night drinking session after you've been to dinner and then maybe gone to a bar there might be a breakaway at the very end of the night and this is the third party that's where the geisha girl that's where the serious serious drinking goes on you know so I, I was uh, I was in Japan a few years ago in Hiroshima and uh, I'd been invited to a festival there it was really odd for me because Hiroshima is uh, what's Hiroshima famous for for the, for the atom bomb and I went there and because I'm a Northern Irish writer because the world is so generous to Northern Ireland I had people coming up to me and more or less sympathising with me for the tragedy of my life coming from Belfast and I'm thinking there's something really seriously skewed you know the scale of the suffering of course when it's when you're talking about individual families it doesn't matter where they are it doesn't matter how many other people die but still the scale of it is not the same at all and why are people coming up and sympathising with me so I was already feeling a little bit odd in Hiroshima and on the last night I was uh, uh, standing outside my hotel about to go back in to bed and I thought I want to go out for another drink so I said to a Japanese friend can we go for another drink somewhere he said aha the third party and I said somewhat drunkenly that's a magnificent title for a book I'm going to call it the third party because the third party in English of course has all these other connotations of a, an unidentified third person and there was kind of something a bit mysterious so that was that was it I was I was embarked on the on the book more or less but it, it, it was a it was a book that began with um, I had a vision of a of a man standing at a hotel window seeing what he thought was an eagle yes, riding by. Yes, I did read the first. No, it's <laughs> okay. And I and I thought that he um, could believe it. I thought it would come back again. That and I and I so it was one of those novels where I saw the first line and the last line together. So to that extent, um, it's the book that I thought I was going to write, and I thought this is a strange wee book. It's quite a short novel. And yes, it's not. Uh, very similar to any of the other books that I've written. Yeah, it's well, that's the thing too. They don't all have to be. No, brilliant. You don't want to do one. And here's a very curious thing. Sometimes, if you set your ambitions quite low, uh, you, you can be surprised by. Uh, I've had more sort of positive reaction to that book from from readers than um, than I've had to many of the other ones. Yeah, you've got lots of good blurbs here. Yeah, and do you know, I, I think that you you. It's one thing. A book goes out. You know, this um, a book goes out. And uh, what you feel about it um, is almost immaterial. Yeah. You know, sometimes yeah. when you think it's terrific, um, you, you get slapped down. Sometimes when you think it's so so, it's yeah, it's the reader's book once you've mm -hmm. let go of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, just finally, then, uh, do you have a book that you're proudest of? You think that really? Was I, love, I love the international. My first couple of books were were very very well received. Um, and uh, you know, I was I was still in my twenties. Um, I was part of this new generation of writers, North and South in Ireland, um, who uh, Anne Enright, Colm Tobin, you know, that we were all North and South. Roddy Doyle, um, Donald Bulger, um, Robert McLean Wilson, who I've mentioned, David Madden. There's a whole crowd of us who were all publishing. You know within a decade of each other in age but we're all publishing around the same time and the first couple of novels um, got a lot of attention and um, did well and then I published the book um, Black Night of Big Thunder Mountain which was set in uh, Euro Disney and which was full of all kinds of ideas and, uh, and frankly as a novel I don't think it was very good you know I think as a novel I'd have to say it was a failure more of an idea more of an Aldous Huxley but, kind of yeah it was, it was, you know it was, it was 
I, I, I was really impressed by myself at the time I was writing it and of course if you're ever impressed by yourself it's a sure sign that's not going to be a very good book for the <laughs> reader and I, with the international I went back to a more conventional narrative I think in, as I went on the first three books I was getting more and more excited about the novel form uh, which is fine as long as you remember that uh, there are certain numbers that make concessions but there are people who are going to read this you know and they have to be able to negotiate find their way through it and the international was a more uh, conventional kind of novel and I think probably had a bit more heart in it than Black Knight and Big Thunder Mountain there was a novel called uh, Number 5 which was surprisingly my fifth novel which was the story of um, a house um, over a 40 year period in Belfast yes and five families move in and move out that may, may be your best known book I like that one too you know so the international has been out of the, the first three novels have been out of print for some time the international uh, Burning Your Own and Fat Lad which was the second novel and they've just been reissued um, and uh, you know that's that's good because for me obviously it's great to have them back in print but um, just if books aren't available you know people stop thinking about them as I said you know they die with you yeah. um, but number five has been um, yeah has, has, uh, has was one I was I was pleased with what that did because what, what I was doing and you, you asked me what are you trying to achieve in the books I mean I, I had a simple uh, thought when I started that book was which was that uh, uh, when we write books about cities uh, when I read about Belfast I made a, a, a mistake which is that I think that everybody walks around thinking I live in Belfast people don't people wake up they live in their house or their apartment you know mm -hmm. that's that's where you're so I, I so I wanted to write a novel that was um, looked at the world from inside the front room and then out and so that uh, so number five is the, is the number on the front door of this house and uh, and throughout that whole novel um Belfast is not mentioned once. I mean, it is Belfast. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not pretending it isn't, but it's never mentioned. Nobody ever says Belfast. It's just the time. Um, you know, I'm going into time, and uh, so uh, and I so I was pleased with that on, on a number of levels. I was, I was pleased with it as narrative. I was also pleased with it because there was something at work um, as well, an idea, but it was subsumed. Uh, you know, it was uh, it was uh, carried by characters and by uh, uh, I hope uh, you know a good narrative it had, it, had, uh, it had the content and the style and it, it was well rounded then well what would hope <laughs> but I, do you know what I mean it's, it, I think it's, it's a very it's very tough and I don't think people often get asked too much about you know their to, to rate their work, it's very, it is very hard. One, but I mean, those are the, those are the ones. I, I went back. Um, I've seen the first three novels, or three of the first four novels, because nobody will ever reprint Black Knight of Big Thunder Mountain. I don't think. But um, three of them have recently come back out, and they had to be reset. Um, and so, when they were being reset, there's always the possibility that the typesetters will, you know, make small errors, compositional errors. So yeah, I had to read through about that. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, but I had to read through the, the manuscripts again, and I haven't read oh, any right. of them. Um, I haven't read any of them. In the case of Burning Your Own, I haven't read in 20 years. And and I was kind of reading them with my eyes kind of narrowed because I didn't, you know, I was, I was thinking I'd be appalled, embarrassed, um, and. You know, while while there were things that I know now I would do differently, um, I actually thought to myself that uh, I was more proud than not of 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 all of the of the books. You know, in that um, I think you have to if you're going to be a writer, 
you have to have a certain amount of ego. Yeah. But yeah, I'll tell you the other thing you have to have, you have to also be realistic about, you know, I, I think that after 20 years, I know my limits, which, does, which doesn't mean that I wouldn't try and kind of push against them at all times, but you know, the, there are things I will never achieve as a writer. There are things, you know, people's work who I, re- I read, and I think this is this is beyond me. You know, this is re- not beyond me in understanding, but it's beyond me, and my admiration for them is boundless. But you also have to look at, um, you know, where you're not in two directions. I look and I think to myself, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a good writer. I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't think it was good. I would never publish a book if I didn't think it was good. I may not be as good as, and the list would be very, 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 very long. But you know, I I, I was pleased when I looked back over the books. I thought, yeah, they stand up. They stand up for as long as I stand up, and then when I go down, they'll go down with me. Uh, Well, hopefully not. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I've been speaking with uh, Glenn Patterson, who was born in Belfast and is the author of seven novels, including his favorite, The International. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks, Ah, Pleasure. Really.